Hello and welcome to Leanne Ward Nutrition, a podcast where you will find expert advice on all things health and nutrition related. Each week, we will discuss my three niche areas of gut health, emotional eating and sustainable fat loss. My hope for this podcast is to cut through the BS online and show you real, practical and evidence-based messages around nutrition so you can live your best life day in and day out. So sit tight, buckle up and let's get started on today's podcast. Today's epic podcast episode is brought to you by my friends at Blue Blocks, the only blue light blocking glasses backed by real science. Blue Blocks has created three specific lenses for daytime, nighttime, and for color therapy in line with the current peer-reviewed academic literature. They're Australian-made, which means they're top quality, and you can get prescription, non-prescription, and reading lenses as well. To view the range of fashionable and science-backed blue light glasses, visit www.blueblocks.com, that's B-L-U-B-L-O-X, and use my discount code LEANNE20 for 20% off. Today's podcast is with one of Australia's leading dietitians, Susie Burrow. Susie is a dietitian by trade, but has also studied psychology and holds an honours degree in psychology, as well as a master's degree in coaching psychology from Sydney University. Susie was a Channel 7 Sunrise dietitian for 10 years, and she writes frequently for a range of publications, including Nine Honey and Body and Soul. So we're very fortunate to have her on today's episode, chatting all things marketing, label reading, and healthy snacks. This is a fabulous episode guys so get your pen and paper out and take notes and please don't forget to subscribe to my podcast so you never miss an episode welcome to the podcast Susie I'm so excited to have you on like I'm stoked (laughs) I have not seen you for so long I think since our um, olive oil event a few years ago and you've just been going so gangbusters it's really nice to have a chat Oh, thank you so much. And I remember at that event being like, oh my goodness, Susie Burrows, I have to say hello to her. And we had a chat and I was like, I can't believe I met Susie Burrows after seeing you on TV for so many years. Oh, that is so crazy. But you have just done so well and it's just a, a pleasure to be here. So let's have some fun. Yeah, I'm so excited. You're going to have so much value to provide our audience today. But let's start off with the basics first. Maybe if we've got some listeners listening around the world, Maybe if some listeners in Australia don't have a TV and they haven't seen you before, can you start off by telling us, Susie, a little bit about yourself, about your qualifications, um, and I guess um, the different things that you do on a day-to-day basis as a dietitian? Sure. So I always wanted to be a dietitian. I wanted to be a sports dietitian from quite a young age. And so I went through uni and did my dietetics degree and I studied psychology at the same time, just by chance that you could do it at that university and, and do a double degree. And... I quite quickly worked in in hospitals and then continued to study psychology. So I specifically was interested in childhood obesity and self-regulation. So that led to a job working with children at the Children's Hospital in Sydney and I stayed in that job for a number of years. But I always consulted for myself and saw clients in private practice and just very organically grew that I started to do some writing and a range of different things. So I've worked for about, I think, 22 years primarily always as a dietitian that's my first love and as part of that I guess mostly now I consult to food industry in terms of um, a lot of content development a lot of PR and and creative development for those clients I still write a lot I still see clients so I feel quite passionately that if you're commentating in the media you really need to have some client experience because as you know that is so very different to theory Mm -hmm. I do a bit of media stuff here and there. So as I've I've got a bit older and and have kids and need work to be a bit more flexible, 
I do most of that for myself. But I, I'm lucky. It's a, it's a good mix of different things and keeps it interesting, which I think is important when you've worked in a field for a long period of time. You don't want to get jaded. And the good thing about nutrition is that it changes all the time. So, you know, it's never dull, never dull in the world of nutrition and dietetics, that's for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Even the things that I learned when I was at university, which seems like forever ago now, <laughs> um, you know, the science has changed so much since then. I remember coming through uni and the low FODMAP diet was sort of just getting a little bit of traction behind it. And now it's almost like second nature, like it's rare to find someone who hasn't heard about, you know, low FODMAP before. And, you know, it's interesting you say that because I guess when I was at university, we were taught high-carbohydrate diets were the way to go. And I'm talking 60 to 70% carbohydrates. You know, we would prescribe diets packed full of processed snacks that were 97% fat-free. And, like, I actually feel, like, physically sick thinking about it now so far from where the evidence base is. You know, we would never have prescribed a fasting regime for someone. You know, I'm in trouble. For, for recommending a low-calorie diet in the media at one point about 10 years ago. And now this is in the mainstream. So it's just constantly changing as our world changes and our habits change and our physiology and metabolism are affected by that. And, of course, our knowledge in the area of food and nutrition and food technology advances. So, yeah, it's just always so much to talk about. Mm, it's such an exciting time to be working in this space, isn't it? It is. And whenever I see one of those lists of future careers to do, you know, there's a lot about tech and and coding, but there's always nutrition and there's always psychology because, of course, relationships remain and that's really challenging, particularly in modern life. So we need psychologists, we need nutritionists, and then we need a lot of computer people. (laughs) Absolutely. Could not agree more. And I guess in the last couple of years, I've always seen you on TV and you always do those great things where you you like um, the segments about how do you choose the best type of yogurt or what's the best type of muesli bars in the shop. So that's what I'd really love for us to chat to our listeners today about. But firstly, before we jump into that, I want to dive a little bit more into, um, you studied some psychology at uni as well. So I'd love to ask you from your perspective, what do you feel like is the driving force for people behind that snacking and the craving and the mindless eating? Because they're questions that I get asked all of the time. Like, how do I stop snacking? How do I stop the cravings? How do I be more mindful with my eating? With your research and knowledge around the psychology space, what would you tell our listeners? What would you say are your, your top tips for our listeners? Well, I think there's two things to focus on. One is the physiology of snacking. So why is your body, why are your blood glucose levels fluctuating so much that it's driving this need? And I really am a big believer in listening to people's bodies. If they're hungry, why are they hungry? What have they eaten before? What's their macronutrient balance? And is there some hormonal issues underlying it? Like, is there a degree of insulin resistance in this person that is driving their incredible need to eat sugar? So I'm always really interested in that. But it does come back a lot to to our habitual behavior. And that's the thing, eating, you know, nutrition is the science, but eating is a behavior. So having some knowledge around that and self-management is is important and a big part of, of developing meal plans and diets that are sustainable for people. It has to be something that fits into their lifestyle and basically builds positive habits. We know habits take a fair amount of time to build. But my personal belief and I guess research interest is in the role of planning. So what we know from the research around self-control and and that links into mindless eating and um, habitual behaviour is that people are not 
better at resisting temptation if they're higher in self-control. So if, if we're sitting with someone who's quite self-controlled, they're going to find it just as difficult to not eat all the Tim Tams as anyone else would. Mm-hmm. But what they do is, Leanne, they don't buy the Tim Tams. They don't go to the supermarket when they're hungry, so they're more likely to buy the Tim Tams. They don't even go down the Tim Tam aisle. <laughs> so they're much more in tune with their higher order goals, which in this instance might be to be healthy or to control their weight or be their best self, whatever that personal driver is for them. Mm-hmm. Then they create the environments via a system of planning so the behaviour becomes natural, so they're less likely to be tempted. So you can see the psychology, it sounds simple, but it's actually quite complex. And one of the the things I talked to one of my psychology colleagues about and his real interest is, is exercise ecosystems, so creating environments that are conducive to exercise in all aspects of your life. But for us as dietitians, it's about food, positive food ecosystems, so that, you know, at three o'clock when you're used to mindlessly munching or you're in the house working at home, how do you create an environment and link it to your higher order goals so you are not distracted by the mindless eating and, and not in a position to even do it so it's fascinating and we could talk you know all day about that but yeah it's multi-layered and factorial but really interesting and I had as you mentioned sort of um it's around that sort of self-control and not even just partaking in that behavior a little thought popped into my head and I don't know if this is true or not but something like self-control is a muscle like the more you use it the easier it sort of gets and the more it can grow would you say that that's true like the more you practice that the easier it becomes over time There is some evidence to show that and that's where the research around fatigue decisions later in the day because basically we've had to be so controlled and make so many and so by the end of the day we we lose interest and we lose that focus so but to a certain extent yes that is part of it but it also comes down to developing some of these neural pathways of the planning in advance because then we're less distracted by our environment so it's safe to say that if we're in an office and someone puts out the biscuits in the afternoon probably most people in that office will take the biscuit Mm -hmm because it's in front of us and human beings are programmed to eat what is in front of them. They're not weak. They're not low in self-control. That is our our programming. So you have to bypass that at several levels, whether it means not going near the biscuits, having an alternate snack choice, keeping in mind what your bigger picture goal is, making sure your blood glucose is controlled at that time. So it's it's quite a um, skill set that develops over time and yes, becomes deeply entrenched. But The other thing that's interesting when you talk about the muscle of it, it's how much attention we can also give to it. Mm. That feeds to people who can be really, really focused on a strict eating plan for a short period of time. But as soon as as distractions come in, we find that focus difficult. And that's my observation of my clients. It's not that they don't want to eat well. It's not that they don't have fairly good understanding about what healthy eating is. But the demands in their day-to-day life are so big that they just have no energy left at the end of the day to make those kind of decisions that's required to exhibit the self-control that will lead to the the diet that they want or ideally should be following. So it's about how do we simplify nutrition messages as well to make it the default and easier choice and not overwhelm our clients to need that much focus to achieve anything because in most people's lives, you know, they're trying to work, they're trying to stay married, they're trying to keep their job, they're trying to pay their bills and food just ends up being down the list because of necessity and and survival basically and in a busy modern life. Yeah, and that's absolutely true for for many reasons, as you just mentioned, you know, we're not going to beat people up for that. But I have a bit of a curly question for you, and I'm sure that many of our listeners at home are in this situation or have been in the last 12 months. What would you do in terms of setting up your environment for success if you're someone that works from home and you're 
office is essentially your kitchen bench. So what are you going to do if your office space, you're working from your kitchen? That temptation is there 24-7. So if you had one or two tips for our listeners, where would you go, Susie? Like it's a bit of a curly question. It doesn't include like a padlock and and pliers or anything. So we can do that. (laughs) The first thing is you've got to get the people who you live with also on board. So one of the biggest predictors of discretionary food intake or junk food intake is the people eating around us. So if you've got a husband or a boyfriend or a partner or a best friend who brings kind of tempting food into the house, you're going to have a lot of trouble keeping on track. So you've got to get everybody who's lived together in your ecosystem on the same page. The next thing is you have to make it really difficult to eat food that you don't want to eat. So if they're in the house, you will eat them. You're not going to keep the biscuits for guests. You're going to be raiding through the back of that baking cupboard to eat the baking chocolate if you've got low sugar levels. So you've really got to clean the house out. That's imperative. You then have to stock the house so that the healthy snacks and meals are ready to go. So that links into that planning phase in advance and ideally doing it the day before or the morning of so you don't have to make any food decisions because if it gets to two o'clock after a day full of meetings, you will order Uber Eats if there's nothing in the house. So it's that process. And I would say if you can get out of the kitchen where possible, whether it's a courtyard or going um, away from food because we do live in a, in a world where food is just constantly in front of us and basically, and we you know you know when you work in this area too a lot of us just eat too much because our lifestyles are quite sedentary so we do have to get back in touch with our natural hunger and when I talk to my clients about this I say you know I want you to rate your hunger out of 10 when you eat and most of us eat at like four or five you know because it's it's morning tea or there's something yummy available or our friends having something very few of us eat when we're eight of hunger as soon as we get back in touch with such a simple concept all of a sudden we're not overeating all the time and, and food tastes so much better and we're we're not doing as much snacking because we realise we're not eating because we're hungry, we're eating because we just want something in our mouth and there's low-calorie options we can use to get around that, you know. <laughs> which is good. Yeah, absolutely. And I call that the distinction between what I call head hunger and tummy hunger, because I have a lot of clients who say to me, I feel like I need to eat something. Like I'm just constantly hungry, but I'm not sure, like, I'm not sure if it's actual hunger. Like they have a real trouble distinguishing between is this true physical hunger? And so I've sort of termed it that head hunger or that non-hungry eating where we get the feeling for the munchies, but I think we know deep down we're not truly hungry or we just had lunch an hour ago and now we're looking, raiding the pantry for some snacks. So what would be your suggestions if we can identify that it's more that head hunger we know that you know we might have just had dinner and now we're looking through the through the fridge for something sweet what do you generally recommend for your clients in that instance yeah and the first thing and that's you've done it so well you've identified that it exists you know because it's no good saying to people just don't eat that's not absolutely not because for whatever needs base it is that they want something in their mouth so I would say keep an array of low calorie snacks available that you can have that chew factor so whether it's popcorn or whether it's sort of crunchy thin rye crackers that you can have with a, a light spread on top things like our berries carrot sticks cucumber sticks herbal tea that you sip on over long periods of time mints you know for, for that kind of some people who need oh, I don't like the term but oral fixation so they need something in their mouth so things like mints and chewing gum low sugar options but what I would also say is that I, I would also simultaneously try and track is there anything missing in their meal that's meaning they're getting that craving because I have a lot of women who are constantly restricting carbohydrate mm-hmm. and particularly that they've got it really entrenched that keeping the carbs low at night time is the way to lose weight now it's more complicated than that, as you know. You know, if you have two cups of, of rice and you've sat down all day, it probably is too much for you if the goal is weight loss. But if you've spent an hour at the gym, 
and you have a jacket potato for 20, 30 grams of carbohydrate, it's actually okay. So sometimes just rebalancing the meal and getting the amounts of vegetables and the amounts of good fat and a, a certain amount of carbohydrate is a strategy. Or I spend a lot of time with my clients talking about how they like to eat. Mm. Like, do they like and enjoy a glass of wine? Do they love something sweet after dinner? And if that's the case, I just factor it in. So I'll say, right, your goal is, is, is weight loss. I can't give you too much fuel at night time. So do you want to have a glass of wine or do you want to have a bite-sized chocolate? You know, you've got 100 calories or 150 calories to play with. What do you, how do you want to do it? And in psychology, that's, that's basically creating the autonomy and the empowerment to make their own food decisions so they don't feel externally controlled by us or, or other people. Because, of course, as human beings, when we feel externally controlled, we say, get stuffed, I don't want to do it because that's human nature. So I really try and create um, their own agency and autonomy around it so they can direct it and then if it really is what we call the mindless munching where it's just having something in the mouth it's knowing you know what won't do any damage from a calorie perspective and there's, there's quite a few good choices out there now those um zero ice blocks also can be quite good you know the um naturally sweetened kind of super duper things so there are plenty of, of nutritious options that aren't overly high in calories that can get through that with some different strategies which is good and I love that option of actually working in someone's favorite food. I call them soul foods. Like they're not nutritionally good for us, but they're good for our soul. They make us happy. A glass of wine, a bit of chocolate, and actually giving the client that autonomy to say, you know what, you get this after dinner. So let's pass on the cookie jar in the afternoon. Let's fill up in some fruit or some nuts or something like that in order to have that wine later on. Yeah. What gives you the most pleasure? And everyone's really different. Like some mm. people love savory cheese. Some people love wine. Some people love cake. Like it's just working out what your thing is and really honing down another strategy we use in psychology interventions is working out the savoring aspects because people who mindlessly munch a lot tend not to taste their food mm -hmm. it's more of a, a behavioral soothing rather than a, an actual taste so if you can actually identify what you're craving and why what will really give you that pleasure and enjoy it a bit more mindfully so say have a, a lint ball which is sort of a more indulgent chocolate versus a freddo and really enjoy it and, and allow people to enjoy eating and, and allow them to enjoy their food. And, and the same with clients, I try and factor in a meal or two off. Not so they have a binge, but so if they've got a beautiful family meal or they're going to a lovely Italian or there's a wedding, they don't have to worry and they can enjoy what's on offer because, you know, life's really short. Enjoy these occasions yeah. because, you know, food can, can bring so much pleasure and so much joy. But it's just there is a lot out there, so it's about working out what's going to bring you the most pleasure and joy. Absolutely. It's all about that balance, isn't it? 100%. I love that. And then snacking is something else that I love, and I think most dietitians would, would be in the same boat. We're all snackers. We love snacking. Is there any, I guess, like right or wrong when it comes to snacking? You know, as long as we're actually physically hungry and our body does need that fuel – as dietitians, we generally advocate for what we call whole food snacks. Can you, I guess, let our listeners know the difference between a whole food snack or more like our ultra processed snacks and why as dietitians we recommend whole food snacks when we are genuinely hungry? Absolutely. And this is a good example of the change in foods that have been out there in the past few years since I've been working. So back 10, 15 years ago, there was an influx of, of sort of processed fruit snack bars that um, muesli bar makers, because keep in mind, muesli bars didn't really get into vogue until the 80s. Then we had sort of the first original sort of chopped chip muesli bars, and then we refined those carbohydrates to get 97% fat-free food. We had a lot of, they call them like fruit twists or fruit bars. Mm -hmm. 
Now that is what we call an ultra processed food. It doesn't look anything like the original food. It doesn't look like the original oats. It doesn't look like the original fruit. They've basically processed the food and added some nutrients back in. It's high glycemic index. It won't keep you full for very long. It's an ultra processed food compared to if you had a container that had in it the oats, a little bit of nuts and the fruit, that's going to be digested so much more slowly. It's going to have a lot more protein, a lot more fibre. So, yeah, I think it's about getting that balance in your snacks, in, in foods that taste good, making sure you're really hungry for them. And, I, you know, people are different. If you're up at 5 a.m. and have breakfast at 6, you probably do need a morning tea snack. But if you don't get up till 8, you're probably okay to go till lunchtime. So it's just mm. working out what your workout routine is, how your metabolism is, how much you sit down. My rule for snacking has always been always eat carbohydrate and protein together. For me, that creates the mix of, of fuel from carbohydrate and then protein for blood glucose control and satiety. So my go-tos are always whole grain crackers and cheese, good quality yogurt with some fruit and nuts in it. I do use nut bars because I find their portion control and there's a good number out there now with less than five grams of sugar that tastes good so they can feel a little bit indulgent. I Myself, I like white cheeses like feta and goat's cheese and I find that a lot of people really enjoy those. So on corn thins, which are one of my favourite crackers with goat's cheese and tomato, I think that's a great snack. I love cottage cheese if people love it. If I've got a really busy, active person, I'll give them mini wraps with ham and cheese or meat on them as like a small lunch so they get away from snacking on lots of snack food and actually have something substantial but I think they're my go-to snacks for my kids who are younger I, I bake you know I'll use whole a lot of oats and a lot of yogurt and stuff in my recipes to create them some muffins and banana bread most of my clients I don't encourage them to do that because they tend to eat it all <laughs> but for active busy people their options too you know zucchini breads and loaves and banana breads that can be really nutritious too and you know I'm like all dietitians, we don't tend to, if you look at our trolley, we don't have a lot of that stuff in it. We don't buy those bars and, and because they're not giving anything positive nutritionally mm. and we're all about maximising nutrition. So, you know, my little boys, I didn't give them muesli bars, not because I'm anti-muesli bar, but more that I, I didn't have them and I could give them enough snacks with yogurt or fruit or cheese and now they don't like them. So is there a strong programming effect? And I talk about that with parents if they're not exposed to it, they won't seek it out. So the less, I think, processed snacks we introduce to kids' diets, the better it will be for their nutrition long-term because we basically are teaching them what snack foods are. And if they learn that snack foods are only things that come in a packet that are brightly coloured and flavoured, it's going to be really difficult to change those food habits as they get older. Mm, absolutely. And, you know, most all dietitians, I assume, are definitely that whole food focus. But we're also not to say that parents can't give their kids packaged foods or anything like that, or we as adults can't eat packaged foods. But I guess let's talk a little bit more about packaged foods and the marketing and that sort of thing. Because I eat them, you eat them, we just don't eat a ton of them. And we obviously like to choose the healthier options within that range. So when it comes to comparing products in the supermarket, how do we know which one's healthier? I mean, let's start with just the ingredient list in general. How do we define a whole food snack versus an ultra processed snack when we're purely just looking at the ingredient list? You know, you've hit the nail on the head. It's not easy. And I, I will say I'm not anti-snacks at all. Mm. I'm about balance. So, so mm. for example, in the kids' lunchbox, I put, I get one packet and I split it between the two of them. You know what I mean? So it, it's incorporating child-friendly food, but in a balanced way. So how do you do it? Oh, it's tough. I think the shorter the ingredient list, the better as a rule of thumb. Um, as soon as you see ingredients this long, particularly for snack food with a lot of um, additives to it, it's a sign it's a highly processed food. If the food doesn't look anything like the original, that's another sign too. Mm -hmm. 
I usually am looking for things whole grains or a source of protein. So if I look at an ingredient list and the first ingredient is milk or the first ingredient is whole grain oats, you're kind of on the right track with that. You want sugar to be far as far down the list as possible. And from a numbers perspective, I sort of am looking at snacks for kids in particular, less than about 100 calories. I want three to five grams of protein or fiber. So I, at least I know I'm ticking the box on that nutrient for some fullness and some extra nutrition. I have always counted carbohydrates. Now, some people don't agree with that model. I don't actively make my clients count them, but when I'm developing meal plans of certain macronutrient ratios, so a certain percentage of carbohydrate, I'm counting carbs. So I tend to aim for snack food to be less than about 20 grams per serve. And the equivalent I can give people is if you have 10 rice crackers, just 10, one row, it's about 30 grams of carbohydrate, and that's more than two slices of good quality bread. So to me, that translates into the fuel load of those foods. So if you've polished off a whole packet of rice crackers and hummus, like that is a lot of carbohydrate you've down for the day. So it's just a reference of, of what's a lighter fuel food. And the good thing is, Leanne, there's actually not that many amazing choices. <laughs> that's very true. I won't name names here, but we put them on Instagram all the time, the dietitians, and they all tend to agree on what's out there. They tend to be legume-based snacks or whole grain snacks with a little bit of flavor, but a whole grain base. If they can have nuts, there's a nut bar or sort of the sugar pea snack things, the dairy snacks, you know, it's a very small handful that end up being quite good nutritionally. I also say we want the best of a bad bunch. We're not saying that processed food's good, but we're saying we're trying to get the best with what we can. Mm-hmm. No people need convenient options that are also user-friendly because you don't want a situation where the child never has food that they see others eating and then they want it more and then are stealing it from other kids. And I've seen that. Mm. So you do want them to learn to have food and not need to eat it all or know that it's a sometimes food or know that they have some of that, but they have a lot more of that. So it is important, I think, that we don't have a purist approach where it's you can never have this because that's not a healthy approach to life you know we're not living in an ideal society it's about getting the balance that's right for you and your family absolutely and in 2021 times have changed you know they're difficult like a lot of two households have two working parents these days they might not have time to bake everything from scratch and go pick some fruit off the tree in the garden like it just it's 2021 you know we have to appreciate that people are busy and they want to have some healthier convenience snacks which is absolutely okay of course we're always going to advocate for whole food first but I think a couple of convenience snacks um a couple of times a week are absolutely okay as well and I think it's about the full factor Mm. I want things that are going to take a while to eat, which is why we like popcorn because it actually takes a long time to eat. Whereas if it's something that's very like those biscuits that are sweet, they eat them in two seconds. And that not only is really calorie dense, but it's also expensive. Like if you look at the cost of packaged food um, on the food budget, it's really significant per kilo cost wise. Mm-hmm. So and people watching their budgets and not wanting to waste money on food, that's a good place to start. And I, I generally say to my families, aim for one package snack food a day as part of the balance because then I think you've got something crunchy and tasty and, and sort of childish and then you can balance the rest out with fruit and veggies and dairy and, and the stuff that we know is, is giving them those key nutrients that they need. Yeah, and that's a great rule of thumb. And it makes me um, laugh because I always see people always send me photos of, oh, is this a good protein ball? Is this a good protein ball? And for me, protein balls or energy balls are one of just the worst convenience snacks. I mean, for something that is tinier than a golf ball, they can easily be two, three, four hundred calories. I'm like, 
boom, in my mouth, eaten, it's done. I'm still hungry. I'm like, I would much rather have like two boiled eggs and some celery with some peanut butter. Like that's one of my favorite snack options. Takes me about 25 minutes to chew down all that celery with a little bit of peanut butter in it. And I'm so much fuller and satisfied afterwards. So I think you're right. The fullness factor is so key, particularly when we're talking about like fat loss or maintaining or living a healthy lifestyle. And I'm just too cheap to pay four or five dollars for four. Like, well, that's a lot. <laughs> I think it's a lot of money. So. Exactly. I do too, particularly when it lasts two seconds. And to be fair, it doesn't really taste that good. <laughs> no, but a lot of them. It's going to be as good as the chocolate. So maybe sometimes we're better to save the calories and have the chocolate later than um, to think we're doing a good thing and down. Like you said, it's like they're two, 300 calories. Like they're always like that. They're massive. Absolutely. Because it's just nuts and, and nuts and dates blended dates. together, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Rice malt syrup, my possibly both disliked ingredient. Yeah. <laughs> I'm interrupting our podcast for a healthy break to share with you today's podcast sponsor, my friends at Blue Blocks, the only blue light blocking glasses backed by real science. If you guys follow me on social media, you'll know I've been wearing my blue light computer glasses daily to help me filter down blue light, reduce computer, screen glare, and reduce my digital eye strain, and also to help me manage my pesky headaches. I've been finishing my workday feeling way more refreshed thanks to my Blue Blocks glasses. Now, Blue Blocks has created three specific lenses for daytime, nighttime, and for color therapy in line with the current peer-reviewed academic literature. They're Australian-made, which means they're top quality, and all their glasses come in either prescription, non-prescription, or reading lenses. You can even send in your own frames and have the team at Blue Blocks add their lens technology to your frames. And finally, Blue Blocks has a mission to give back. For every pair of glasses you purchase, they donate a pair of reading glasses to Restoring Vision, who then give them to someone in need. That's incredible. These guys are the best, and I'm honored to have them sponsoring this episode today. To view the range of fashionable and science-backed blue light glasses, visit www.blueblocks.com, that's B-L-U-B-L-O-X, and use my discount code LEANNE20 for 20% off. Now let's get back to our conversation. (laughs) Absolutely. And then I'd love to chat to you, Susie, around the front of package marketing. I'm talking like organic, dairy-free, sugar-free, low-fat, no artificial sweetener, gluten-free, healthy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How can, as consumers, how do we know what a healthy choice is? Because I can pick up a bag of lollies and it says fat-free. doesn't mean it's healthy. (laughs) I can pick a bag of potato chips and it could say um, organic. doesn't mean it's healthy. So how do consumers know from a quick glance if they're racing through the supermarkets trying to get themselves or their kids some healthy options? Would you advise not even looking at the front of the package? Because marketing can be so misleading, can't it? I just saw some kombucha lollies the other day. That was funny. Um, I think if you've got intolerances or specifically celiac, of course you must look for gluten-free. So let's preface with saying that. But I think for everybody else, skip all those words. I think the only true indicator and the only thing I ever look at is the ingredient list and the, the NIP, the nutrition panel. And I tend to look per serve now when I'm specifically for packaged foods that we're generally using for snacks more than, than meals. But I don't look at any of it because it is it is marketing and it's confusing. And I think, you know, you can tell that when you look at the health food section of the supermarket, they're not all healthy. They're often energy dense. So I have always been, and a lot of dietitians will disagree, but I've always been quite calorie focused because at the end of the day, we can't change the fact that we burn calories and we need to be across roughly how many we may or may not need. Now, that's not taking away from the fact that some people can have too few and be overly restrictive, but in general, it's a variable we're never going to be able to change. And you're right, when you allude or talk about things like the organic corn chips or the protein balls, they're so calorie dense. 
that I generally, you know, don't use them in my plans or with my clients because I have so few clients who are burning a lot of energy. You know, my clients are working all day. They're busy mums. They're driving around. They don't, they can't eat a 400 calorie snack. It doesn't work for them. Yeah. I'm not talking about people who spend two hours in the gym or are lifting. I'm talking about the average person who spends a lot of the day sitting and does want to lean up a bit. Yeah. So yeah, I don't look at any of it. I think it's really misleading. As I said, the only exception would be obviously for people who are needing gluten-free food and there's an increasing number of those. I would say, yes, absolutely, make sure it's clearly labelled as gluten-free. But I don't read any of it. I think the other thing that's pertinent at the moment is the use of vegetable oil and the pervasive use of it across our food supply. So I'm always interested, do a quick scan if it says vegetable oil because we know that's really not good for us and and creating a a diet in which there's quite a high intake of processed omega-6 fats so I try and avoid that on labels and obviously keep the sugars as low as possible. But I think that if it looks pretty healthy, a quick scan of the ingredient list and it's not packed full of preservatives and additives and a quick scan of some protein or fiber and you'll be on the right track. And I also think that people have a rough idea of what's healthy or not. Mm-hmm. If it looks like a chip, tastes like a chip, probably a chip. Yeah. <laughs> That reminds me of um, like those legume chips, like the pea-based chips. I'm like, it's so far removed from what a chickpea is or from what like an edamame bean is that it can't possibly, sure, it might be a slightly better option than the standard potato chip, might have a little bit more fiber in there, but it's still an ultra processed food at the end of the day, isn't it? It's far from removed from the humble chickpea. And the research shows people overcompensate. So they eat more of it because they think it's healthy. And that's when our head starts to play with it. Whereas if we just went for what we know to be true. But actually, it's a good um, reminder you've given me um, edamame beans and um, seaweed. Mm. Are two really good snacks for kids because I find little kids love that, which is kind of weird because they're green and, and odd kind of tasting. But nutritionally, if kids eat those, they're great snacks. You know, you get the iodine from seaweed, which a lot of Australians are deficient in. And soy, you know, edamame beans are, are so high in fibre and protein. And if kids will eat that, you are winning yep. because that's just an easy way to get some really nutrient-dense snack food into them. And they think it's a treat. So I'm all for that. Absolutely. Whenever I make some um, a healthier version of my fried rice at home, I always put edamame beans in there. It's one of my favorite ingredients to add into some of my dishes. It's a cheap ingredient too in the frozen variety, which is the other thing. You know, it's a great way to bulk up dishes and make them really cost effective for families. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, if you're at a table and the kids aren't eating much veggies and they have a little bowl of edamame, you are laughing. Yep. You're winning as a parent. <laughs> now, I'd love to just quickly bring you back. And when you were talking about the omega sixes and the processed vegetable oils, we have a lot of experts on the podcast, and we've covered a ton of topics. I think our podcast is, I think we're close to eighty, so we've done quite a few episodes. But we actually haven't talked about omega sixes and vegetable oils on the podcast. So I'd love to pick your brains a little bit more about that because I'm sure some listeners are sitting up at home and their ears are listening. And they're going, "Oh, wait, I haven't heard that on Leanne's podcast before." So can you let our listeners know? why in fact we don't want too much of that omega-6 like three ratio and why vegetable oils traditionally probably as dietitians we did recommend them years and years and years ago but now we're really down those anti-inflammatory oils the extra virgin olive oil pathway instead of the vegetable oils yeah you know you've heard it here first i think this will become the latest buzz in the world of nutrition you know we've really honed in on sugar in recent years we've done recently some work on trans fats in the australian food supply this is absolutely the thing that needs to be talked about more when it comes to disease risk and prevention so in the the body's natural inflammatory pathways is all about a balance of what we would traditionally call the good fats and the bad fats Mm -hmm. so bad fats are are the fats we would say are are processed fats so they're refined oils usually coming from vegetable oil so it will be labeled as as vegetable oil or blended vegetable oil or palm oil or even canola oil 
And those fats, particularly when they're in a processed added way in our food, like I'm not talking about the fats we have in our nuts or our seeds, that can also be that type. I'm talking about the processed version. When it comes into the body, it forms the base of our cell, they compete with our long-chain omega-3 fats. Now, we know that those long-chain fats that come primarily from deep-sea oily fish but also in walnuts, linseeds, they compete for uptake. Now, what we would call a positive omega-3 to omega-6 ratio is an anti-inflammatory ratio. And what we've seen in the past 30 to 40 years with lifestyle and diets, as processed food has increased in our diet, is we've gradually had an increase, significant increase in these omega-6 fats. And there's some theory behind it that it's this imbalance of the good fats, the anti-inflammatory fats to the pro-inflammatory fats, which is related to inflammation and a number of disease states in the body. So things like insulin resistance, type 2 diabetes, heart disease, blood pressure, all the the health issues we talk about Mm -hmm. and so much more in modern life than we ever did before now we at a gross level say it's diet but also as we learn more about the diet we know it's refined carbohydrate which increases um, inflammatory hormones like insulin over time and it's these pro-inflammatory fats now it came up and it comes up all the time because people are having them and they don't realize it so whenever we order food in and have uber eats or go to the restaurant they're probably cooking in a vegetable oil because it's cheap now we know that extra virgin olive oil good quality australian extra virgin olive oil which is packed full of antioxidants that's healthy because it protects our cells that's not what we generally consume and as more of us are eating out and ordering in and also with a relatively high intake of processed foods whether it's the banana bread or the muffins or snack food that we pick up out of the house we are getting all of this processed fat that we don't realize and it's really leaving us predisposed to inflammatory conditions over time so what i would urge you to do and we will do more of this in the media because i'm really sort of feeling like it's about to explode you've got to check your labels so for example we were looking at butter lurpak butter came up and when you look at it it's a spread it's actually not butter it's got some butter in there but it's blended vegetable oil because that is soft and it allows you to spread so if you look at all our spreads in the supermarket like 99 percent of them are made from blended vegetable oil mm. so you might think it looks healthier like it's olive oil spread or it's, it's a butter it's not it's processed vegetable oil that slips into our day every day and these are, are adding up over time so start to really check your labels when you go to, to takeaways shops or if you go to a beautiful restaurant ask them what oil they're cooking with i'm guarantee it's not extra virgin olive oil it's too expensive so there's a reason dietitians say to limit fast food, to avoid fried food. It's not because it appears healthy. What the dietitian knows is you're getting these processed vegetable oils in your diet when you have those foods. So being more aware of that, particularly for people at risk of autoimmune conditions and inflammatory conditions, which is increasing without a doubt, we've got to be a lot more onto that. And, and of course, over time, there's more pressure on, on food pro- manufacturers to change and make sure they're using better quality oils will benefit health of a population over, you know, 20, 50, 100 years. But amount that's seeped into our food supply is, is really quite alarming. So, yeah, do a quick scan. And if it says vegetable oil on it, it's probably palm oil and it's really bad for us. So the less of that you have and the less of that you feed your kids, the better. Absolutely. And it's in some really simple products that you wouldn't even think. I remember looking at it was some sort of like Nutella or some sort of, without naming brands, chocolate sort of spread that a lot of parents would give their kids to put on toast, for example, and it was packed with palm oil. I think chocolate spread in general, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I think the first ingredient is vegetable oil, then sugar, or the other way around. So for that reason, it's not the chocolate spread. It's the ingredients used to make the chocolate spread 
the worst combination, processed vegetable oil and sugar is just such a, a toxic mix for our blood, you know, and I know the Nutella or the chocolate spread tastes great. I, <laughs> I, I like it too, but nutritionally when it becomes that habit where kids are having it every day on their toast and mm. it's processed white bread, this is where nutrition habits are formed and this is the problem for health long-term. It's not the one-off treat, it's the daily food habits and that vegetable oil does seep into our days via these processed foods. Yeah, absolutely. And what would you say, I guess, if there are consumers listening at home who, from a budget perspective, perhaps couldn't always afford extra virgin olive oil, would you have another type of oil that would be your next best or that sort of thing? Particularly, I'm thinking like cooking at home where they're using it like regularly in things like their stir fries and cooking meats and proteins and that sort of thing. I think there's a few tricks to that. I sort of very rarely will go on the record and recommend a different type because mm. I don't want the message to be it. it. It's just nowhere near as good. And I had a, an argument with an editor about that. She wanted me to rank the oils and I wouldn't do the article because I just didn't want the message to be there good at all. Yeah. So what I would say is shop when they're on sale because you can get olive oil at really discounted prices. So if you can really, um, when you, you need to use oil for your cooking, splurge if you can but if you know really you just don't have that capacity I'd say I cook a lot on say a baking paper so I don't often need to use the oil at all so if I'm cooking salmon or chicken I'll use a marinade on it but I won't use oil at all and I'll just use baking paper so that actually eliminates the need Um, I think you can get some reasonable varieties of spray oil so you're getting the wetness, but you're not then getting the nutrition. And then if I had to push, so what like what my husband uses on the barbecue, like I'll probably use the sunflower occasionally. But if I'm honest with you, we don't really have any other and um in the in the pantry. So using less overall to help restrict use, shop when it's on sale so you can make it a bit more budget friendly. Because yeah, I definitely don't want the message to be there's better types you know and same with margarine or butter like really try and limit the amount of spread you use in general in the diet and if you really love it with your vegemite toast i'd probably just go for a plain butter and let it melt a bit to be honest absolutely and i and i appreciate are you saying that actually as well? <laughs> but um, I'm a big believer in, you know, I use a lot of nonstick pans. I recently got an air fryer for Christmas. It's like my favorite new thing is my air fryer. But I do, I use, if I need to have something, I'll either use my good quality extra virgin olive oil or just like an olive oil spray. So it's just like a little bit. Yeah. So can I just ask you, what are you, because I've got an air fryer as well, but it's mm. like big, so I don't cook a lot in it. But just out of interest, what do you cook in there? Mostly potato. Like uh, potatoes are my favorite foods in the whole world, like roast potato or something for, I might cook up some salmon or something. I'll do some salad and serve it with some like chippies or something but so I just give it a quick spray on the potato in the air fryer mm, absolutely and I guess because if I'm doing chips at home which I'll do both potato or sweet potato I'll mm. use like I don't want to swear but I'll use a lot of olive oil on there but yeah. I guess from a budget perspective you would argue that using the air fryer that you can get for quite affordable prices yes. is quite smart because then you don't need to add the oil Yes, I just use a, a tiny amount of spray oil, yes. toss it with some herbs, and I'll put my chips in there with my pumpkin and a little bit of like um, zucchini or something as well. I put all my veggies in there together. And yeah. then sometimes like the zucchini mushrooms cook a bit quicker, take them out and leave the chips maybe for like, maybe another 10 minutes or something. Yeah. And can I just ask another question? Yeah. Did you find it a bit gross to clean it? I don't do it. I make my husband do it. <laughs> no, I don't need a better husband. <laughs> Yeah, I'm just learning about them because we're doing a lot of segments on air frying. It's been so popular mm, yeah. and I'm, you know, getting my head around it a bit more because you. For, I didn't think of that for that benefit. 
so yeah if you're on a budget in terms of ingredients it's actually going to save you long term in in oil for roasting yes and I agree the same with um, non-stick pans like I have a lot of clients that I work with who I don't traditionally give them oil when I give them recipes when I work out their calories and macros etc I'll give them a recipe and they say oh can I use oil in cooking and I'd say the preference is not because I've already given you some fat in the salad or in another part of the meal and we don't have a huge fat budget to play with here because we're aiming for a calorie deficit so for that instance I'll say you know can we invest in a good quality non-stick pan because yes we're spending money now but we'll be saving money in terms of the amount of oil that we use later on and health reasons and that sort of thing so people do the jamie oliver pour you see it's terrible (laughs) just a little bit 10 minutes later (laughs) two cups of olive oil you know i live with italians at uni and absolutely they use a truckload they do but they don't eat much like you know it's all balanced whereas we tend to still have the truckload of food with the extra it's, it all ends up being too much so yeah no we can definitely be guilty of the, the jamie oliver pour i call it <laughs> yeah, yeah when it's you know in line with a mostly plant-based diet it's absolutely okay but it, if it's in line with more the western style diet yeah, definitely overdoing it i think but yeah, air fryer is one of my favorite new things and this is not sponsored by an air fryer company guys uh we got the phillips one Yeah, just a medium sized one. There's only two of us in our household. So um, for us, it's it's perfect. We do, I still do my protein in my nonstick pans and I just throw all my veggies into the air fryer. It's awesome. Okay. All right. There you go. (laughs) Love them. All right. My next question for you, Susie, is I guess the last one in terms of like just navigating the health food aisle. I find that the majority of products in that quote unquote health food aisle, and this is not if you're clinically needing it. Say you have an allergy to nuts or you have um, celiac disease, you 100% need the gluten-free foods. I'm talking about for the average consumer that just wants to be that little bit healthy. How do we navigate that health food aisle? And is it actually healthy? Because those foods are sometimes four times the price. And I have a lot of clients with diagnosed celiac disease. who I say, just avoid that aisle entirely because rice is gluten-free and it is so much cheaper. Cheaper. Potato is gluten-free. You don't have to go and buy the gluten-free crackers when you can just have, you know, like a bit of fruit or some veggie sticks as a snack as well. Yeah. A hundred percent, I would agree. I tend to really only use products in that section for very specific dietary requirements for like fructose malabsorption and gluten-free. I'm just thinking off the top of my head, there's a couple of products that I seek out for kids' nutrition because they've got a few like of the whole grain snacks that are there that you can't get it it's kind of more boutique products like you know rice crackers dipped in a little bit of chocolate but you do pay for that the message is you absolutely do not have to be in that section to get nutritious food in the in the supermarket i can think of two products i routinely get from the health food section but what i would say is that keep in mind food companies are are directed there by the supermarket themselves so generally speaking unless it's a very specific product Mm. they will want to be in the mainstream section of the supermarket the supermarket will want to push them there because it's higher price point Mm -hmm. but that's a little bit the way supermarkets work it's all about price point and positioning the brands that have mainstream food would actually much prefer to be in the mainstream supermarket but it can charge a boutique price being in that section. So just be a bit savvy about the control supermarkets have over our food supply, which is a whole podcast in itself. Absolutely. You've got to take it a bit with a grain of salt because it's more, it suits probably in many cases for the supermarket to keep that product in the health food section because it will command a higher price point. And I guess bearing in mind that just because it's a high price point and has a lot of fancy labeling on the front doesn't necessarily mean that it's healthy. No. And as I said, I can think of two very specific kids snacks that I get from there because they're sort of fun and quite nutritious. Mm. Wait till they're half price. Mm -hmm. 
I do the same thing. Shop half price there. But when it comes to there, there's not much else I get there unless, as I said, I'm sending a client in there for particularly fructose stuff tends to be in that section. Mm. But um, it's been a growing area for supermarkets to develop boutique lines that suit their own food. And so, yeah, you can take it with a grain of salt, which is actually quite why I like shopping online for some people because then you don't get the distraction of the layout of the supermarket. And you're actually searching product-based, not aisle-based, which is very powerful. Absolutely. Yeah. I probably, again, go to the, the health food aisle for two products as well. I use psyllium husk from there and I use um, the fava beans, the roasted chickpeas and the roasted fava beans. Yeah. yeah. I was thinking mess- I get the messy monkeys from there for the kids because I do think they're one of the better snacks and I get the table of plenty. I do have an alliance with them. I'll declare um, a relationship, but I like those chop coated rice crackers, I think are really cute and the kids will like those. And, you know, that's a brown rice product, but they're sort of the ones I, I tend to, to seek out there routinely. Yeah. But isn't it interesting that you pick about maybe two or three products from there. I myself pick two or three products from there and there's an entire aisle dedicated to quote unquote healthier options. Exactly. And that's where the the definitions of health vary so widely. The only thing you can really believe is the nip and the ingredient list really, because everyone's definition of health is is very different. Mm, Absolutely. And is it true that when you were talking about the layout of supermarkets, that companies actually pay a lot of money to get (laughs) their products featured at eye level and be at the checkout? or on the end of the checkout rows, they pay big money. 100%. It's all about positioning. You will have noticed over time that supermarket brand starts to occupy space that other mainstream brands would have had as they gradually change over and they'll take a product that's strong nutritionally and just replicate it and put their own brand on it. But, yeah, anything in a supermarket is paid for with the position in the shelf, how much shelf space, what's on sale each week, what prices they're allowed to dictate. It's all heavily controlled. And one way to avoid all of that is to um, if you shop online, particularly if you find you do get distracted in the supermarket and buy things you don't really want to be having or find it really confusing, shopping online is, is something that supermarkets don't love for us to do because we're going to spend a lot more in the store. But from both a budget and nutritional perspective, you're going to keep a lot more on track when you're doing it online. And also you and subtotals as you go which is great and it facilitates meal planning because you have to think about what you've already got at home and what you're going to use so it's a really smart strategy to sit down and get your your grocery list going or your baseline one and you'll save a fortune if you do that versus going into the supermarket absolutely i never go to the supermarket a hungry or b without a list because i know both options always end badly (laughs) oh late afternoon is is just the worst you know you will always get the tempting treats and you know it's not by chance, you know, two for one Tim Tams or half price Tim Tams are in massive displays at the end of the aisle. This is all heavily thought out psychology mm. of encouraging people to eat more. So from a population health perspective, it's something that big organisations like the George Institute are really focused on because they know if they can change some of that, they'll change nutrition of a country. Mm. For us individuals, the ways to outsmart it are not going into the middle aisles that have got packaged snack food in it. Don't go when you're hungry. Shop late at night when you can get great deals on protein-rich foods, stick to a shopping list, you know, they're all strategies that can help override that default um, mode that supermarkets want us to get into to buy and eat more. Absolutely. And then just to wrap up this podcast, Suze, you've provided some incredible value, particularly around the vegetable oils. I think our listeners would have got so much value out of that. What would be your top three to five, six, even 10 snacks from a health and even like a a weight loss perspective for just the general consumer? (laughs) Okay. My go-to snacks. Oh, I just like a latte. Yeah. Oh, big coffee fan here. (laughs) You know, I find that that hot, if you can have decaf as well, a hot latte. And I think if you want normal, have normal milk. I usually have skim because I prefer it, but it keeps you full all afternoon. You don't snack if you have that. So, and as I said, you can do decaf. What else do I like? I like cheese and crackers. Mm -hmm. 
um, buy to eat in sliced cheese or buy them in pre-packaged ones so you don't eat the whole lot. I love corn thins. I've been a big fan of corn thins my whole career and I like to top them with the white cheeses, so the cottage cheese or goat's cheese and feta and tomato, or I am an ambassador for Mavers, so the 100% nut spreads are, are great options as well. And there's a chocolate one, which is a much cleaner nutritional ingredient list. And what else? I like a good yogurt. I sort of oscillate with my yogurts. There's so many all the time, but the ones I'm sort of earing to at the moment, I do use quite a lot of YoPro. Shibani, um, Fit, which has got less sugar, but I quite like the new 2%, I think it's called. Mm-hmm. But my clients aren't loving it as much, so I have to give their feedback. They're not as big a fan as I am. Um, I think popcorn can be a great mindless um, munching kind of snack. I think any kind of veggie sticks like you talked about with a portion control of peanut butter or hummus. Be careful with your hummuses, though, because a lot of got vegetable oil-based. It's really easy to overeat, so you've got to measure out your dips. I think that's really important. I probably like like a whole grain baked good, like if you can sort of do a little mini muffin or something, I think that can be quite nutritious, um, or like a zucchini base to a banana bread and keep the portion control. And with bars, the couple I use, I'll use a 100% nut bar, so I quite like the Carmen's because they're quite low in sugar, and her – the Carmen's protein bars are quite good too. They're a bit higher in sugar, but for active people, they're still under about 10 grams. So they're probably a go-to snack. And then I'll say my table of plenty um, chocolate rice cakes because they are, you know, feeling like you've had a chocolate snack. Like if you have a latte in the afternoon or a piccolo and one of those mini snack packs, you're happy as, and it's like <laughs> less than a hundred calories. So yeah, I think it's just getting a range of foods that you're looking forward to eating and enjoy because when you do that, you're less likely to keep searching for something else. And I'll throw two of my favourite ones on top of the um, any sort of fresh fruit, particularly when it's in season. I'm loving like, you know, um, just plums and nectarines and the stone fruit at the moment. And oh, then, of course, find a peach that tastes like a peach. That's a good day. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. And also I love just making some like mini homemade quiches. So just getting some eggs and some egg whites, throwing them in with all my veggies that are about to go bad or whatever, just chopping them all up, throwing them down, a little bit of cheese on top and baking them in like muffin tins, but just making little mini quiches are really easy snacks, filling as well because of the protein. Yes. If you you can be that organized, probably only happens to me like once every three months, but it is a good option. (laughs) And then finally, Susie, any last words of wisdom that you can leave our listeners with today to help them become more informed around healthy snacking and prepackaged food choices or options? I think there's so much nutrition information out there. And I, as I get older, I feel much more passionately about you have to get your information from a dietitian. Everyone's an expert. You know, I'm constantly battling, you know, people pitching ideas who have got, you know, a diploma in nutrition, which doesn't mean they don't know about nutrition, but they don't necessarily have the applied understanding that a a dietitian does. And I think you've got to get your information from one source Mm -hmm. because everyone's going to be a little bit different. So, you know, you can get confused. So I think whether it's your fantastic podcast that you listen to, you know, you've got someone you follow, it's the consistency of advice I think is really important. I think get in touch with hunger. So few people are in touch with their hunger. It's a basic thing that you can really take control of. Get the balance that's right for you. You know, there's a million diets out there and they'll all work if people do them, but the issue is that people can't do them. So whether your approach is keto, whether it's paleo, whether it's low carb, whether it's fasting, you know, work out what model of eating is sustainable for you long-term and and really focus on your weekdays around that because that's where most of our food decisions are made. 
And I think, you know, finally, I would say planning is always the key to dietary success. It's not knowledge. A lot of people know a lot about food, but it's when you're hungry, tired, and you find yourself starving without the food that you need on hand to eat well, that you make poor decisions. So Mm -hmm. it happens to me, I work in a Westfield, there's a food court, right? But if I don't take my lunch, the food options I'm going to have there are pretty poor. There's a schnitzel place, there's Japanese, which I don't eat a whole lot of, of that. You know, there's so few options. I'm going to have a lunch that's not great nutritionally and then I'm going to be left feeling over full and then later hungry. So that planning phase for all of us is really important so that you can keep in control of your nutrition four to five times a week, four to five days a week. And then when it comes to the weekends and you want to celebrate and you want to enjoy some drinks or party, you've got that nutrition platform to bounce back off. And that's where we focus on the extras. We need to focus on building the platform because mm. when you've got a firm platform, the extras aren't as important. Mm. So that's my my words of wisdom. Couldn't agree more. Build a healthy foundation first. 100%. Absolutely wonderful. It's been a pleasure having you on, Susie. Thank you so much. And where can our listeners find you, reach out to you, um, follow you on social media, get in touch with you, maybe for like a consultation? Do you take still take online clients? Um, I see quiet still and I, I tend to specialise in insulin resistance and polycystic ovaries, but I do a lot of weight control. So I have rooms in Bondi Junction in Sydney. I consult once or twice a week. Um, I'm on Instagram, just under Susie Burrell Dietitian. I've got quite an active Facebook page. So, you know, if, if you're interested in practical nutrition solutions, yeah, absolutely. I'd love to be in touch. Wonderful. And I'll pop all your socials um, and your website in the show notes as well. So listeners can pop into the show notes and have a find of you there and um, reach out and give you a follow. Lovely. Thank you so much for having me. I could just talk to you all day. What fun we've had. Absolutely. I think we'll have to bring you back on for another podcast around insulin resistance because it's a huge issue around the world, isn't it? And you're definitely an expert in this area. So we would love to have you back one day. Anytime. I'd love to be there. Thank you. Thank you so much, Susie.